I think it's worth a moment to review and just to tell everyone, uh, you know, in case you have forgotten or are not, are not, are getting reacquainted here. Um, feel free to ask a question in the chat box. If you want to, if you have one along the way, uh, that's fine. We'll get to them or there will be a time at the end where we'll, you know, where I'll stop and, and take questions. Um, and you can, you can ask them, uh, as you wish. So, um, I think it, it, you know, bears, uh, mentioning that some of the events that I've been watching today, they, they do come to bear at least a little bit on our study of first Kings. And we, we've been talking for a long time about the kingdom, um, that God is establishing. We've been dealing with that almost exclusively in the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings is, uh, you know, Jesus has come to set up his kingdom and, and he's sort of Matthew's unrolling that, you know, for us through the gospel and showing how Jesus does that. And then on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the uh, initial beginnings of that, of that kingdom through both Adam and then ultimately through God's promise to bring about a king and obviously through David and Solomon and, and so on. And now we're into Solomon's kids and uh, we're going to see even the death of one of Solomon or death of Solomon's kid and, and onto the succession plan that happens in both the Northern and Southern kingdoms. And so some of the events even today do bring to, to bear, uh, come to bear on the text that we're in. And I think it, it just uh, is a reminder uh, for me, it has been a reminder of just how much of the Bible is directed at the way we treat kings and kingdoms, earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily asking for questions or, a, you know, conversation on how to interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we will no doubt do that at another time. But um, so much of the book of Revelation is geared towards how you as a Christian uh, treat the world of politics and uh, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the book, in the first three chapters, there's two whole chapters, chapter two and chapter three, and really chapter one as well, but chapter two and chapter three in particular, where uh, the churches are reminded that they serve a king that is not of this world, and yet uh, is eternal. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the reminder to these people, uh, these churches is that if they don't bend their knee to the earthly kings, if they continue to worship the Lord in spite of any persecution that may come or any other things that may come, then they will receive a crown of life. But what we find out throughout the rest of the book is that there are people who will bend their knee to what John later calls the beast in Revelation. It's at the end of Revelation where he brings, brings about that term uh, beast, and we see horns. Um, beasts are in the Bible kingdoms, and horns are, uh, scripturally speaking, kings of those kingdoms. And um, John is urging his people um, not to, uh, and, and John, Jesus through John, I should say, is urging his people not to bend their knee to the kings and kingdoms of this world in spite of what it may appear, what power they may appear to possess. And part of what struck me today is I'm, as I'm watching this, you know, 
event take place at the Capitol. Um, and for those of you that, that weren't watching, uh, the, um, there were a bunch of people that kind of stormed the Capitol building and uh, broke in and, and, you know, broke some windows and did some things. One lady was shot dead. And, um, you know, as I'm watching that, it, it struck me that there, there's so much of our, our hearts are bent towards making a God of politics and what happens when we do that is when our person doesn't win, when our candidate doesn't win or whatever, um, we feel like our entire world is being torn asunder because someone has essentially taken our God and smashed it. And um, as Christians, we can't afford to be in that position. That's not the position that we take. It's, you know, it's, we're, we're in a weird situation. As I prayed earlier, we, we've got to pray, you know, for a country we've, we, we, are active politically, just kind of naturally as Americans, we're, we're active somewhat politically and we're asked to be active. We have to vote and we have to do these sorts of things, which, which are difficult and they're kind of an anomaly in, in historical, historically speaking. Um, and yet at the same time, we can't afford to let the allegiances of our heart be shifted toward these political alliances. And, um, and, and, and what happens when we do that is we feel as though, and, and how we know we've done that is we feel as though when our candidate or the one that we preferred to win doesn't win, we feel like the whole world around us is also collapsing. And that tells us we've made a God of uh, people in, in power, in, in temporary positions of power. And I don't mean to lecture anybody about politics. I certainly don't. But um, I also want to make clear that, you know, what we're seeing on display in front of us, you know, is in some, some ways a, uh, a, the result of a lot of idolatry that's been going on in this country for a long time. And people have been, you know, jockeying for positions of power and, um, and, you know, wanting their, their people to be in, because if they do, then they can, you know, have their agenda or forestall the other agenda or whatever. And at some point we as Christians have to realize, you know, we hold everything in an open hand that's in this world. You know, certainly I, I think some of the values that have historically been in place for this country are what's best for my neighbor. You know, I think freedoms that we have, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, those kinds of things are good for my neighbor. At the same time, I also have to understand that those things can be taken away from me at any moment. And I don't necessarily have a tremendous say in that. I have a vote and I have a few things that I can, I can do, but outside of that, I don't, I don't have a lot. And if God chooses to take those things away from me, I'm still a Christian and I'll still be a Christian and I'll still serve the Lord until I die. And if that is death that comes about due to old age, or if that's death that comes about by persecution, uh, I'm still going to serve um, until the day I die. And I think we have to remember that, that, um, that, uh, that the God that we serve is not in Washington, D.C. And if it ever is, then we're going to feel like every four years, our whole, whole world is collapsing or every four years, our, our whole world is set aright again. And um, I think churches are guilty of that. Pastors are guilty of that. People in pews are guilty of that. Everybody's guilty of that at one time or another. But I think we have to keep that in mind. And I think the text of First Kings, uh, really the text of the whole Bible, is, is pushing you away from making an idol 
out of the kings and, and dominions that are temporarily in control of this world and helping you realize it's only temporary. And so we're going to see that, I think, a little bit today, that it is only temporary. And that the reason that kings fall is per- perhaps not the reason we might think, uh, we might be inclined to think. So let's just review where we've been. Um, you know, Solomon died and his throne was left to Rehoboam. And remember, Solomon died under not so great circumstances. His heart was taken away by uh, wives and, and foreign wives that he had married. And, and he served uh, false gods and, and allowed them to serve false gods and provided places for them to serve false gods. And so the country was a little bit torn asunder and, uh, and God was going to bring down judgment on him and on the kingdom for that. And so after Solomon's death, his throne fell to Rehoboam, who continued to reign in Jerusalem after his father, and he was anointed in Shechem. But the whole kingdom is divided. And there's obviously evidence already that there's going to be a divide. There's a divided loyalty uh, between northern and southern kingdom. And so um, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, God tears those away from Rehoboam and gives them to Jeroboam. Uh, I know that's very confusing. Uh, It won't be the last time we're confused about the names and all that kind of stuff. But Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, uh, God tears the kingdom away from Rehoboam, gives Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, really one tribe, which actually is two tribes, Judah and, and Benjamin, gives those to him and gives the southern part of the kingdom, mostly the territory of Judah, to Rehoboam. And, and he does that, he says, because of his father, David. So I'm going to give this to you because I'm going to honor my word and my commitment to your father, David. But outside of that, you, you don't, you don't have a a kingdom, uh, at least of all the Jews, the rest of the Jews, the 10, 10 other tribes in the North are all going to be torn away and given to Jeroboam, who was a, um, you formerly a servant in Rehoboam's kingdom and was a, um, you know, was a, uh, uh, I guess a, a fastidious young man who uh, exhibited some uh, promise and some chutzpah, let's call it that, in uh, in Rehoboam's kingdom, and he's given this north, this you know, northern tribe, this uh, ten northern tribes. Um, Jeroboam was then reproved by God through a prophet of Judah, who came and told him uh, that what he was doing was wrong. And remember, Jeroboam was in the process. He was actually in the middle of appointing a new religion, appointing uh, priests of a new religion. And when the man of Judah, the prophet of Judah, came to him, he was in the middle of a, of, of a pagan sacrifice to God and, and, and or to a, a false God. And, and it seemed as though his reasoning for doing that was that he was really worried that his people were going to go down to Jerusalem and begin sacrificing there and that they would forget about the Northern kingdom and that their allegiances toward the Northern kingdom would be turned away and would go back to Rehoboam. But that again, we've seen this happen a number of times in scripture uh, first and foremost, obviously Adam, but then, Abraham was a huge example of someone who had a promise from God, but then didn't believe it. And Jeroboam is certainly guilty of that. He has a promise from God. You have the 10 Northern kingdom. I'm going to give them to you. But then when it comes to their worship at the temple in Jerusalem, he thinks 
oh, that's how they're going to turn away from me. Not realizing that it was God who gave him the kingdom. It wasn't um, his own wits or his own chutzpah or whatever you want to call it that got him the kingdom. It was um, it was the fact that that God had given him that. And so that wasn't how God was going to tear it away, was allowing the people to go down to Jerusalem. They should have been able to go down to Jerusalem and worship God there, but he didn't, he didn't let them. And so what we're going to see now, and you're going to see this throughout first and second Kings, we're going to, there's going to be a number of times where we go through, we blitz through five Kings in a night, maybe. And all of that is because the passages are going to be really short and they're going to identify some really common themes as to why um, these Kings died and, and what, what they did and what they left behind. And part of the reason why they're not that significant. What we're going to find is that first Kings and second Kings really kind of goes through the Kings in relatively short order until it gets to uh, the interesting part that they, that the author really wants to let us know about. And then he's going to spend a lot of time there. And so we're going to kind of be blitzing through a lot of Kings until we get to about chapter 17, where Elijah, the prophet is going to take over. And, um, and so we're going to spend a lot of time on prophets and things like that. Um, but so we've got, you know, Jeroboam is in the north, Rehoboam is in the south, and they're soon going to be uh, on their on their way out the door. Um, so I think I've, I've got somebody's microphone maybe on. I'm going to see if I can find who that is there. Uh, I keep getting some a buzz coming back the other way. Um, all right. So soon after uh, this encounter with the prophet of Judah, Jeroboam's son becomes deathly ill. Remember, this is the northern king Jeroboam. So we're, I want to be clear about that. We're in the north now. We're in the 10 tribes in the north. Um, and uh, Jeroboam's son has now become deathly ill. And the king is going to, he's, he's going to do what anybody would do in this era, which is figure out why my son is ill. Now, what you or I would do in today's day and age is we would probably go see a doctor. But in even today, in many countries where medicine isn't practiced quite like that, they go find what they would typically refer to as a witch doctor. Now, that's not what we're necessarily seeing here. But the reason they do that is because they see, uh, obviously, illness as twofold. One is there's medical issues going on. There's also um, religious issues going on. Well, if you can imagine, like if you go over to Africa, that's typically the way they think through things. Well, in this day and age, it is, let me figure out from the Lord why this is going on. And so what does, um, what does the King Jeroboam do, but he seeks out the prophet Ahijah Um he was the one who had torn his garment originally and predicted that Jeroboam was going to come to power. Remember, Jeroboam was just reminded by a prophet from Judah, completely different prophet, but a prophet from Judah, that what he was doing was wrong and that for it, he was going to face repercussions. And so now he's beginning to face some repercussions. And so what does he think to do but to go to another prophet from the Lord and ask, Hey, what's going on? Tell me what the Lord says. But it seems as though he's feeling a little bit guilty, maybe about what he's already done with the temples and all that kind of stuff. And so he sends his wife, 
uh, to figure out what is going on. But his wife comes in a disguise. But that doesn't fool a prophet from the Lord. So let's look at the passage here. The very beginning, 1 Kings 14, 1 to 12. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with your ten loaves uh, some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of your uh, of, of you concerning her son, for he is sick. And thus and thus, thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, As she came to the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. He just ruined the disguise right there. Why why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off uh, from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Anything belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise therefore and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Um, you know, on a little bit separate note, can you imagine being the wife who just had this news as soon as she walked in the house and realizes now she's got to go home and be the messenger of what he just said to her? Um, so some bad things are going to happen um, because of Jeroboam's sin. And, and this, is the, this is specifically what I want to hone in on tonight is that Um, the kings of Israel or of Judah uh, don't rise and fall on their own wisdom or their own, even their own ineptitude. Uh, They rise and fall on their faithfulness to the covenant and their faithful, faithful obedience to the Lord. And he's the one that takes away their power and gives them power. And he's going to make that very clear through the prophets time and again. This is the way you came into power. So not only does is Jeroboam's wife told that their son is going to die because of the king's evil and that she has to go convey this message. 
But there, she's also told, let's see if I can get to the next slide here, that all of Jeroboam's line after him is going to be completely cut off. So um, he's going to leave his crown uh, to his son Nadab, um, who is also going to walk in evil ways. But the king's family uh, is not going to occupy the throne for very long. And this is different than what we see even with what's happened to David's family. What happened to David's family? Well, you know, David left the throne to Solomon. Solomon sinned. Solomon was told his the throne was going to be ripped apart or ripped away from him. We're going to see, um, you know, a line of succession go through Judah, but all of it is going to go through David ultimately. And and so God is going to f- both fulfill his, uh, his covenant with David and yet also punish the house of David in the meantime uh, for, for Solomon's unfaithfulness. And so, it, 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 so even though David has a, a person on the throne, David's house is still punished for Solomon's unfaithfulness to the covenant. And yet God is still faithful to David's covenant. So it's, it's, it's kind of a both and with David. But here with Jeroboam, he doesn't give the same reassurances uh, that he had to David. He, he tells him for sure, you're going to be eventually cut off from, uh, from the throne. Your, your sons are going to be cut off from the throne. So Jeroboam, though blessed with most of, most of David's kingdom, he had been given the to- 10 northern tribes which was a large share of David's kingdom. Um, He hadn't measured up to David's standards, and that's made clear. And so he had blatantly violated the covenant of Yahweh by making other gods uh, and rejecting the God of Israel. And so what Yahweh is going to do, we're going to see, is he's going to terminate Jeroboam's dynasty, and he's going to eventually take Israel, the northern kingdom, and move them beyond the river Euphrates, and into exile. And where's that exile going to be? That exile is going to be in Assyria. The Assyrian army is going to mount up. We're going to see it in 2 Kings. They're going to mount up in a fence. They're going to come and attack. And they're, they're going to be uh, brimming with the prospects of coming in to, to attack Israel for some time. But they're eventually going to do it in 722, where they're going to actually haul off large swaths of the northern kingdom into captivity. And this is a promise that we see all the way back here. Remember a few weeks ago, I said that all of these problems that we're going to see in First and Second Kings really stem from First Kings 13, uh, where all of this happens with, uh, um, with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And we're going to see all of the things that come to fruition and they're being taken off to captivity prophesied here. Um, very early on that this is going to happen. So um, that's uh, covenant of Yahweh and river Euphrates. Now, Jeroboam, it seems just on a, on another little note here, we can kind of think about this. Remember the capital that Jeroboam has established is in Shechem, uh, which you can see in the middle of the map in the yellow portion of West Manasseh, Underneath Samaria, you might be able to see the city Shechem right there in the middle. Um, and then he has moved, it seems, the capital probably to Tirzah. 
which is about eight miles to the north and to the east of Shechem. And the only reason that we know that is because that's where his wife returns, where she finds him. Now, the interesting part of this, and we see, we'll, we're going to find this a ton in the biblical text, is we'll see the biblical author just mention the city and go on and not really mention a ton else. But we're also going to find that there's actually extra biblical evidence. There's also, um, you know, intra-biblical evidence as to why that capital may have been moved. Well, the last years of Jeroboam's life, had, is gonna, we're going to see that he's entangled in countless wars with Rehoboam and Rehoboam's son, Abijam, or you might hear it, Abijah. Um, but, uh, and, and that was most likely due, we're going to see, because of the southern kingdom's desire to absorb the northern kingdom back into it. So just because they have split doesn't mean that the kings in the south were just content with the split. Of course not. The kingdom that was promised to David is the kingdom that was that was that we saw with Solomon and that grew under Solomon is the same kingdom that those southern kings really want to repossess. And so for a long time they're not content with a northern king and a southern king. They see the northern kingdom as illegitimate and to some extent rightfully so. And so the southern kings are really wanting to bring the northern kingdom, uh, what's the expression, into rears or, or, or back under control. And so the northern kings for, or the southern kings for a long time are going to be uh, going into the north and, and engaging in countless wars with the north. And so for a long time, Jeroboam is going to be engaged in this. But sometime in the area of 926 to 925, right in that area, uh, Shishak from Egypt is going to come up into Palestine and going to be engaging in wars. Many weeks ago, we talked about this as, as being a thing that's going to take place. And, and this is really the last time Egypt is going to be heavily involved in Palestine. And so, but is in this little invasion here, but basically he's going to move up into Palestine. And so it's, possible that Jeroboam, because of the attacks from Rehoboam, because of the wars with Rehoboam, because of the uh, impending wars potentially with Shishak moving up into Palestine, he moves to a safer place in Tirzah away from what would traditionally be seen as the capital in Shechem. Uh, We don't totally know, but it seems uh, that that's probably the reason she goes back to Tirzah rather than coming back to Shechem, which would have been the capital. Um, Okay, so there's a succession plan. There's succession announced and there's succession coming in the north where the kingdom is going to be handed off to first to Jeroboam's son and then it's going to be ripped away um, from his lineage. But then we get to succession in the south where uh, the situation in Judah is hardly better. So we saw in the north where uh, what what was the cause of the, the kingdom being ripped away from Jeroboam? It was idolatry, right? Well, Rehoboam's not really that better. He, he's permitting all kinds of idolatrous practices to come into the land. And, and obviously, some of that's going to be without his knowledge. It's just 
uh, a result of his father and a result of uh, Israel's own hard heartedness. But there's going to be objects like high places and religious pillars and groves and sacred prostitutes that are going to become pre prevalent throughout the land and all of which were so obscene and illegal that Judah indeed appeared little better than her northern uh, neighbor. Now, this is, I put these two terms in here, um, high places and religious pillars, which you're going to see sometimes in the biblical text called Ashtaroth, or you may see it, there's another, diff, uh, several names for, for uh, these religious pillars. But when you see this, this phrase, high places, which we're going to come to know, uh, we'll be very familiar with in the book of Kings, the kings, especially the kings of the south, but the kings of the north too, are going to be judged based on their um, dealings with the high places. The kings that are going to be elevated to places of prominence or are going to be called out for their adherence to the covenant are going to be ones that, quote, tore down the high places. But the ones that are going to, the kings that are going to be torn, the kingdoms are going to be torn from them or, or they're going to be um, evaluated in the text as been uh, had, had a poor reputation are the kings who did not tear down the high places. And what those high places are, are basically pagan temples. And normally they're called high places because they are quite literally on the highest hill in the area. Um, to this day, if you go to um, the, uh, the biblical city of Bet-Shean in, um, in the, the Holy Lands, you can go up to the highest hill in Bet-Shean and you can see the foundation stones of an ancient pagan temple there. And the reason is because that, that is a high place. It's, it was erected there who knows how long ago uh, by who knows what exact group did it, but those are high places that were created there. And so these high places become really important. And what does uh, what does Rehoboam permit, but these high places to continue? He doesn't tear them down like he should have and, uh, you know, discontinue any pagan practice there. Now, perhaps at the instigation of Jeroboam, or maybe it was Shishak of Egypt, uh, as he invaded Judah at this time, um, Shishak, uh, or sorry, perhaps at the instigation of Jeroboam, Shishak of Egypt invaded Judah at this time, carrying away many of the sacred temple objects from Jerusalem. And so he moves into Jerusalem and he begins to kind of, uh, you know, create, wreak havoc there. And he carries away many of the sacred temple objects from Jerusalem. Um, and, um, and, uh, his onslaught didn't stop there for Shishak turned on his old friend from Israel up in the north and he invades the valley of Jezreel and beyond. I want to read this passage in 1 Kings 20, uh, 14, 21 to 31, where he says, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there, his mother was uh, his mother. His mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and Asherim and on every hill and under every green tree. Um, and there was also male cult prostitutes in the land. 
They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guards who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things that the biblical author does a couple of times. You notice anything that's repeated in the text is worth kind of circling. Hey, this He comes back to this again, and you notice he repeats again, his mother was Naamah the Ammonite, so he was part Ammonite. He repeats that twice after he tells us that the city that he reigned over, uh, he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. So we see that there's a particularly wicked kind of idolatry that both Solomon engaged in, in that he took on pagan wives, that the king that was a result of that pagan marriage was um, was half Jew, half Ammonite, and uh, practiced idolatry like his mom and his father did. And for this wickedness, uh, he is invaded essentially by Shishak. This is uh, a, a, we can't see this as anything else than really a judgment that God has given uh, to the Southern kingdom for their idolatry. So again, we see it, we saw it with the Northern kingdom, with Jeroboam. We see it again with Rehoboam. What is the reason that uh, the Southern kingdom is torn asunder and is picked clean by Egypt? Is it because the ineptitude of Rehoboam? No, the ineptitude is also part of the judgment. He, he's inept and he is, I, and he, because he's being judged by God, because the land is being judged for its wicked idolatry. And, uh, and so that's what causes all of this to happen, not the other way around. Often we look at the result and we say, oh, well, all of this happened because of a natural outcome. It was because he was, he was, an idiot but it but it's not it's he's being judged his idiocy is also part of the judgment that he's uh inept and that he is all of these things because he is idolatrous and that's the reason god is judging him for his idolatry um all right following the death of rehoboam the situation in judah steadily deteriorates uh his son and successor abijam you will see this in the niv as abijah but uh, there's just some difference in the Hebrew text as whether it's Abijam or Abijah, and maybe he was even called both. Who knows? But uh, Abijam, uh, I, I made it that I chose that name because the ESV text that we use uses that name, and so to avoid confusion, I, I use that. But he didn't walk in the ways of David either, and yet the narrator is going to tell us that God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him, a favor done for David's sake. Let's read the text here. 
um, on 1 Kings 15, 1 to 8. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, so here's the southern king being referred to by the years of the northern king. You get that? In the 18th year of the northern king Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam, the southern king, began to reign in Judah. And you should see that reflected on your on your timeline in the back of your handout. Uh, he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Avishalom. Uh, and he walked in all the sins that his father had done before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of, his, uh, of David, his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now, therefore, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And, and there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. We'll get to Asa next week. But, um, but if you think about just for a second uh, what God is doing here, if he's judging people based on their idolatry, he occasionally gives to the kingdom a king that is going to uh, rule after the, their father, David. And why is that? It's so that he doesn't have to destroy them completely, obviously. So that they can, as the king goes, so goes the nation. And the kings that are being raised up um, sometimes lead in idolatry and God judges them for it. And then, and sometimes as a grace given to Judah on behalf of David, God gives them a king that will lead them in righteousness so that he doesn't have to destroy them uh, and, and completely wipe them off the face of the, of the map. Now notice too, that Solomon, we saw at the very beginning of his reign, when he asked for wisdom, um, we saw that he started to, right after he asked for wisdom, it's told of us, it's, I think that's back in 1 Kings 3, maybe 3 or 4, right after that, it's told to us that he had peace in the land. God gave him peace from all his enemies. And that's what inspired Solomon to then begin to build the house of the Lord. Well, what happens as a result of the sin, but no longer is peace given to the land, but now everyone has mentioned that they're all constantly in war and there were wars every year, every year. War, 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 war. Everybody was fighting against everybody else. War, as it turns out, is also a judgment uh, given by the Lord. Um, all right, where are we? Uh, evidence of Yahweh's ongoing grace is seen in Abijam's success against every effort of Jeroboam to defeat him. So the kingdom of Judah continues to remain um, in spite of the fact that Jeroboam is more prominent. He's got more tribes and things like that. Um, but Jeroboam uh, isn't able to defeat the southern kingdom either. So God has a grace there in keeping the king on the throne. In fact, this is going to be a, a, a thing going on into exile as they go into Babylon. They still can keep track of their kings uh, that would be on the throne. After his, his accession, Abijam found himself 
facing seemingly impossible odds as Jeroboam confronts him on Mount Zemarim, um, only a mile or two from Bethel. So uh, Jeroboam is going to approach him in war. He is going to be, or actually uh, uh, Abijam is going to approach Jeroboam in war. Jeroboam is going to surround him on the front and on the back with armies all around. And it is going to appear as though um, that he, that Abijam should be absolutely defeated. He faces impossible odds. And yet Abijam, so Abijam had marched north and he did so because we're, we're going to see that he wanted to win back um, the, the Northern kingdom, which he saw was illegitimate. And you would think that that would mean, uh, let me get to that slide, by the way. Uh, he, he, so Abijah marches into the Northern Kingdom. He wants to win it back because he says, hey, look, the Northern Kingdom was taken away from us. They're illegitimate. God promised all 12 tribes to David. He promised to always keep us on the throne. And yet here we have this Northern King who is, he's an illegitimate king. He has 10 tribes. These 10 tribes are following him. Uh, that's not what the Lord promised. So we're going to go get it back. And when he walks into the Northern Kingdom, uh, Jeroboam surrounds him on front and back, and he's got no escape. And yet he is still not defeated, which is a which is is nothing more than a complete and total grace and mercy of the Lord. But if you go back all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's a promise that God had made. So here again, even in the foolishness, this is absolute foolishness for Abijam to march up there and do this. But even in foolishness, it's not his ineptitude that causes him to fall away from, from the kingdom. It's not his foolishness that causes him to die or lose the kingdom. It's actually his idolatry that does that. His, in spite of his foolishness, the God, God is still faithful to him and still, because of his father David, doesn't give the kingdom to Rehoboam, I mean to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam had taken advantage, uh, he says, uh, Abijam said, makes the argument that Jeroboam had taken advantage of Rehoboam and he had carved out this sort of dominion for himself um, but Israel ought to return to David without further ado. So we see this not in the book of Kings, but in the book of Chronicles. It's in Second Chronicles um, 13, 1 to 22. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah, here Abijah, but in First Kings, Abijam, began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years uh, in Jerusalem. His mother was Maacah. Um now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against, against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemarim, uh, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord 
And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. So basically he's saying, you know, Rehoboam was stupid and Jeroboam took advantage of that and took away part of his kingdom. And now you should come back. And so uh, it says here in verse 13, Jeroboam had sent an ambush uh, around to come upon, uh, upon, upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind them. That's never a good thing, by the way, for you to be surrounded. Um, And they cried to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah and God gave them into their hand. Um, So, uh, what is it? Is it Abijah and his battle smarts that defeats him? No, the biblical author makes very clear it is God that gives the military victory yet again, in spite of his ineptitude. So I included this example here because we see succession in the northern kingdom, not because of ineptitude, but because of idolatry. Succession in the southern kingdom, not because of ineptitude, but because of idolatry. In fact, it's in spite of ineptitude. This is an inept move on the part of Abijam to go up to the north and be surrounded on all sides. Bad military strategy. But in spite of all that, God is still faithful to that. That's not the reason he's taken down from the throne or that he loses his throne or that he's determined to be, you know, valid or good or whatever. He's evaluated positively or negatively. It's because of idolatry. So to validate Abijam's theological stand, Yahweh, himself took up arms as the divine warrior. The author makes that abundantly clear and delivered his people from calamity. Yahweh, divine warrior, takes up arms himself and delivers Abijam. So the biblical author is going to make this abundantly clear over time that it is not their prowess, their smarts, their ineptitude that allows a king to stand or fall. It is specifically their heart of covenant faithfulness. So it's not political wisdom. It's not military might. It's covenant faithfulness determined whether they succeeded or failed. Now, as we think about that, um, perhaps, you know, America is not Israel. The kingdom or the dominion that America has um, is, you know, for the here and now, it's, it's temporary. But our nations no less evaluated um, on their faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, I think in many ways they are. And I think idolatry um, on the part of people is still judged to this day. And I think we can see that even in something like Romans 1, where you see um, that... uh, there is a point in the idolatrous activity of people where God um, gives them over completely. And I think it's a great mercy that he um, forestalls judgment as long as he does. But I think we can look around um, 
and see in our nation that many of the things that are condemned in Romans 1, 18 to 32 are championed and celebrated in our country today. Um, even worse things, uh, maybe if that's possible, um, you know, things that are, that are continually celebrated and, uh, championed as good and diverse or whatever. And is it not then within, you know, reason that we should expect to see, uh, the country torn apart by division, um, the, you know, the tumultuous transition of power, let's call it that. Um, is it not, you know, shouldn't we expect that to probably happen? And when we see that happen, can we not say that in some way that is, you know, God, uh, issuing some, you know, judgment on America for the vast amounts of sin that we, uh, champion. And how do we, how will we actually see that judgment play out in the years to come? Um, you know, we have churches all across America that call themselves churches that will champion these sorts of activities, uh, as good and as right and as moral and as decent that are decried in scripture and told our abominations. And yet from the pulpit, they'll even be championed. Um, don't you think that perhaps at some point God purges the church of people that would, you know, propagate such lies and not adhere to his word that he's given to us? I think he will. And I think he is. Um, and, you know, we as people, what are we called to do? We're called to be faithful and to be fruitful. And we're going to see even this Sunday that fruit bearing fruit of the kingdom is really it, it, it. Part of it is sharing the gospel. Sure. Sharing the gospel with people and seeing people come to come to Christ. Sure. Absolutely. But more than that, Jesus harps on prayer and continually reaffirming your faith in him as King. Um, those two things are held up as tantamount to what it means to bear fruit of his kingdom. That is to continue to worship Christ as king, his rightful king. And um, and obviously that would mean, you know, our hearts are loyal to him and his kingdom above all else. And to devote ourselves to prayer. Uh, he continually comes back to those over and over again. And we're going to see with the withering of the fig tree in, in Matthew is he comes back to that again. And um, and so for us as a, as a people, uh, it seems like what we should be about as well. Questions? David, you get, your your mic's muted, I think, if you're talking to me. Well, Jamie can hear me. Hey, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the reference is to, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings yeah. of Judah? kings of israel is that our book of chronicles or is that some other publication no there's in fact he says uh in 22 look at um hang on look at is this first chronicles second chronicles 13 21 and 22 no 22 
the rest of the acts of Abijah, his why his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Idu or Ido. Um, and there's another one too. There's another mention of another book um, that I'm not seeing right now, but, and maybe that's in a different place, but um, there, there's the, the Kings or the author of Kings will make reference to a book of the Chronicles of the Kings, which, um, you know, some people, sometimes there are times where he ref- references things that do occur in co- Chronicles that we can read. But uh, the, it seems that the vast majority of the time he's referring to a book we don't have. Uh-huh. Is it a, a general synopsis of what this path we started on going through the two kingdoms? Pretty much everybody in the north is evil and about half and half are uh, good or at least start off good. And they flame out in Judah. Um, There's certainly going to be rampant idolatry in the north, for sure. Uh, Idolatry is going to be all over the north. And yeah, I mean, the southern kingdom is going to have its... I would say the good kings in the south are probably more the exception than the rule as well. Um, By and large, it is wickedness and idolatry after wickedness and idolatry. And you can probably count... Uh, you probably even know most of the names of the good ones in the South, um, you know, and we're, we're going to experience a couple of those. And it seems like as best I can tell, as we go through the text that, man, the only reason that those Kings are come about the good ones is simply just a grace of the Lord that he doesn't. So he doesn't just absolutely wipe his people off the face of the planet, you know, and he gives those as a mercy. And that's, that's about it. You know, what can explain outside of that Josiah's finding of the law, you know, and things of that nature, you know, it's uh, outside of just the Lord going, all right, look here, (laughs) this is so I don't, don't kill you. He's just maintaining that lamp and that covenant with David. Right. With an occasional good guy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and ultimately bringing about Christ. Let's not forget that this is Israel's purpose. Israel's purpose and the covenant that God has made with Israel is to ultimately bring about the Messiah that will save the world. So uh, we, we sometimes we'll lose track of that. And sometimes I think in our theological opinion, sometimes we, we lose a lot of track of that um, where, you know, Israel is elevated to this uh, people that they were never meant to be. They were intended to be a bearer of the seed that is, is true Israel that is going to, save mankind and i think we we just need to remember that that um they are they are um they often um do wicked things and god preserves them for his own name and for his his own purposes which we're going to see in christ other questions all right i told uh shannon and i i so hold me to this. I'll tell everybody this. Uh, hold me to this if I forget along the way. But as we get to the prophets, in a few chapters, when we get to chapter 17, we're going to switch from part six, the kingdom, and we're going to switch to part seven, uh, prophets and kings. And we're going to keep track of not only the kings of the north and the south, but also the prophets. 
And so Elijah's coming first in 17, and then we'll see a number of prophets along the way. And that chart on the back of your handout that is the timeline of events of the kings, or like the rough timing of the kings, I'm probably going to try, I guess, to add a third column over there where the prophets occur so that we can see. Uh, I, I, I'll probably mostly stick to the prophets that are going to be the writing prophets, the ones that write books, so that you can kind of keep track of the Old Testament books and where they fall in relation to which kings and things like that as best we can tell and put them in roughly their time. So it's going to get tough with some of the writing prophets because they occur in weird, you know, areas that we're not quite sure. And so uh, I'm going to do my best over there uh, to do a third column. That way we can, by the time we get through with all of that, we should be really through with the old Testament altogether as we uncover the prophets along the way and what they're preaching and why they're preaching it. And I think it's, I hope it's going to be helpful as we study things like Habakkuk and we see that what Habakkuk is doing and when he's doing it and help it make sense in relation to what we're studying in the history of the Old Testament uh, and putting those, those prophets in their, in their right place. So uh, hold me to that. If I forget, uh, I don't think I will forget, but we're going to, I'm going to do my best to do that. So let me, um, let me pray for us and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we could come together and discuss your word. And I pray uh, for your help as we read and as we study um, that you would identify for us, uh, bring to mind, uh, bring to the surface the idolatry in our own heart that no doubt we are tempted with time and again. And uh, and it, it is difficult often to live in this world and to operate in the capacities that we do and see all the news coverage and all those things that we do and not at some point have our, uh, maybe our anger roused or, um, you know, our, our hope uh, seemingly vanquished for a season. And, and I pray that you would reveal that to us as idolatry and help us to understand that, um, that, you know, king's heart is a river in your hand that you turn whichever way you want to and that we uh, can see that play out in front of us both in the scriptures and in real time in the world around us that we may instead of following after the kings um, we can follow after the king of kings and truly turn our hearts attention to the kingdom that we uh, belong to where our citizenship will never be removed and um, and that you in the end will provide the only means of salvation for us. Uh, I pray that we would do that and that would lead us to a deeper relationship with you and a worship of the one true and living God. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.